0: Well, good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter. So excited that you're here over the last month or so. I've been getting a lot of questions, a lot of insights. We've been working on like Christmas, the gifted series and everything that went into that for so long that haven't given an update on the REACH campaign in a little while. So I wanna start off this morning and just say that, that uh, just because you probably haven't seen a whole lot uh, with that, uh, the wheels are very much still in motion as we get our contractors ready, get the plan all set. Um, remember, the Reach Campaign is about reaching more people with the love of Jesus by renovating this space, uh, paint, chairs, audio, video, lighting systems, and especially enhancing our online experience to make sure to broadcast this message of Jesus to as many people as we possibly can. Because we're all about, and you saw the sign out there in the lobby, um, bringing people who are far from God to new life in Christ. So kind of like keep an eye out for some of these uh, exciting changes happening maybe end of January, beginning of February. It's all of a sudden going to be a lot at once because we're going to do the most of that uh, work in a week or so. So stay tuned, and of course, I'd love to uh, chat with you a little bit more about uh, the specifics of that at another time. This morning, though, we continue this series called Addition by Subtraction. Last week, we introduced this thing with the idea of the concept of our time, and we said that it's possible that there's a way to enhance life, especially our spiritual lives, not by like adding and cramming in more and more all the time, but in fact, by pulling Stop pulling things out. In fact, we can add to our spiritual lives and our whole lives simply by subtracting what doesn't belong. Last week we looked at that uh, concept as it relates to our time. Today we look at the concept as it relates to our money, to our financial situation. Now as soon as I say that, it gets really weird and quiet in here, and I want to acknowledge that, right? Because like I'm a church leader and you're at church and you're kind of expecting the buckets to like pass around again and they're like, here's the new campaign now that we wrapped up the old campaign. We're not doing any of that, okay? There's not going to be that around. You can just like breathe easy, like you're good, you're fine. In fact, this is not really about that at all. Because I think what happens oftentimes is that you kind of come in and there's like this bit of probably earned skepticism that you have. Uh, and I want to say, that's cool. Don't, you don't have to check that at the door. Bring it all in. That's okay to bring in here. That's who you really are. That's, that's good. Uh, but I do want to say that if you come in with this idea or understanding, just to kind of get us all on the same page, that God is after your money or God wants your money or God is somehow uh, looking for your money or God is in any way dependent reliant on your money, I wanna say that isn't just like a bad church experience in the background, but this is, but that really kind of cuts to the heart of who you believe God is. That's a theological issue, right? Because, because if you believe that God needs your money or wants your money or is in any way dependent, reliant on you for anything, like I just want to humbly suggest that you have an entirely too small view of God. He's so much more than, by definition, he's God. He made everything. It all kind of belongs to him anyhow. It's just sort of on loan to all of us. So just this is an encouragement to like expand your idea, expand your understanding of who God is. In fact, he doesn't want anything from you this morning or at any other time, but he wants so much for you. And I can say that because of this crazy, weird Bible story that we're just about to read this morning. And, and before we read it out of Luke chapter 16, before we get there, before we put the words on the screen or you kind of open it or open up your Bible app or do whatever you're gonna do, I, I wanna say that this Bible story is so uh, so controversial and so I think misunderstood a lot of the times that in, in the fourth century, so a little while ago now, uh, the, as the Jesus movement was expanding and it became less of like a, just a is in Israel, Jerusalem kind of movement and started like moving through the, the Roman empire and started becoming like this global, like belief system, world religion. And, and as it was like explosively expanding, in fact, in the fourth century, people started, people started like clamping down on this thing. People started accusing the Jesus followers of being corrupted thieves because of this story that I'm just about to read for you. So if that doesn't like really get your interest going and in saying like, well, I don't like it or hate it. Like I still want to kind of know like what made, what by, what did Jesus say that people are like there? That's why he used corruption. That's why he encouraged theft. That is our story this morning. Let's see where this goes. I don't know, it may not go well. Luke chapter 16, as I said, the words are gonna be on the screen behind me if you've got a device or blue screen. We love that around here. Um, also, there's Bibles uh, underneath the chairs in front of you. Take those home. That's cool too. But it starts off and Jesus is about to tell the story in Luke chapter 16. In verse one, it says this. Jesus told his disciples this story. He says, hey, there was a rich man. Now, rich man is oftentimes it starts off, you think, well, that's obviously the bad guy. He's not the bad guy in this story. So just like, let that one go, okay? He's just a rich guy. He owns a lot of stuff. Okay, in fact, he's kind of the good guy. There, there was a rich guy. There was a rich man whose manager or a steward or the household employee, the guy, the accountant who kept track of the books, the accountant was accused of wasting his, that's the, that's the owner's possessions, Oh man, it, if, from an accounting perspective, like it doesn't get as any, any worse than this, right? Where the owner is going around and like everybody kind of is coming up to him and they're like, hey man, I don't know. But like you, the guy who runs your books is starting to spend your money on stuff. I don't know if, it doesn't really seem like it's the kind of stuff that you would want your money to be spent on. You know, right? Like I, I just saw your manager like driving a Lambo around. Like, I don't, I don't think that's really your heart. And I know you don't pay him that well, but like just FYI, well, enough people... It was the ancient equivalent of that. So it was a very nice camel. (laughs) Enough people told him that like he's wasting your money, that the guy started to get suspicious, started to not only suspect something, but realize now isn't a time for words. Now's a time for action. So verse two comes along and says, so he, so the owner calls the manager steward uh, guy, accountant in and he asked him, hey, what's, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. No, no, in fact, because you cannot be, my man, be manager any longer. He fires him like right on the spot. You cannot be manager any longer. This is that game over, like you're done. You wasted my money, you stole my money, you did all, like you're, you're just, you can't be a part of this thing anymore. You're done, you're on the street, you're gone. Okay, couple of reactions to that. First of all, it's, it's gonna be really important for, for what comes next in the story to know just how scandalous the story was, to know two things. The first one is that even though he's fired, he's not like totally fired yet. Right, because because the boss, like whatever, he's generous enough that he he doesn't lead him away in handcuffs. He lead, he leaves him away, kind of like in a quasi place of, he's fired. He doesn't work there anymore. But nobody else knows that he doesn't work there anymore. Okay. So like, he's gonna go back, he's gonna get his books, he's gonna close whatever needs to be cleaned up, he's gonna bring the books back and then he's gonna officially be done. So he's fired, but nobody knows that he's fired yet. Very important to the story. The second part of the story is how wildly extravagant generous this this boss is. Like this rich guy, right? The land owner in the story. Because he finds out that the guy, the manager that he's hired, that he's trusted has been wasting his money, been stealing his money, embezzling his money, doing whatever it is with his money. And he doesn't do what most of us would wanna do. He doesn't do what I would wanna do, lead the guy away in handcuffs. My first call isn't to him to like be gentle and and dismiss him quietly. No, I call the cops and then I'd call him and say the three of us are gonna have this meetup here together and I wanna make sure that you leave here crystal clear like what's happening. No, none of that happens. I think the fact that he allows the manager to exit employment quietly, demonstrates to all of us just how generous this rich guy, this owner really is. And that's gonna be really important for the story because the guy realizes I'm fired. Nobody knows that I'm fired. So this is what I'm gonna do. He thinks to himself, verse three, he said to himself, what should I do now? Not that I'm fired, but nobody knows. My master is taking away my job. All right, friendo. He's not like taking away your job. He took away your job. Like you're fired. You're done. Okay. And it's kind of your fault. Okay. I'm, he goes, I'm not strong enough to dig. There's probably an accountant joke in there somewhere, but I'm not gonna make it. Uh, respect. Okay. And I'm ashamed to beg. So I know, I know what I'll do so that when I lose, when I lose my job here, Again, it's like, yeah, yeah, you're kind of already done. Okay, but still then people will welcome me into their houses. And when he says house, welcome into their houses, what he's talking about is because in those times, all the businesses were run, practically all of them, as like household uh, jobs. Like if you're a blacksmith or like accounting or a farmer, whatever, like it was your household like employment vocation, like everybody in the house kind of worked for that. So he's talking about being welcomed into somebody's house. He's not talking about going over to somebody's for dinner. And like, that's what I'm most concerned about. No, no, no. He's looking for the next gig, for the next job. So he's like, what do I have to do right now so that when everybody knows I've been fired, I can get another job in somebody else's business, in somebody else's house. You're tracking with me. All right, and this is his devious plan. And this is why people are looking back at Jesus. I mean, that guy, he encourages theft and corruption and nobody should go to church, least of all any good Jesus loving Christian people. Okay, this is what happens. Verse five, this is his plan. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. We don't know how many there were, but it seems like there was a lot of them. He calls in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, How much do you owe my masters? Answer, verse 6, 900 gallons of olive oil. That is a ton of olive oil. What's probably going on that indicates to us is that he was a land owner, and then he leased out land or property to a whole bunch of people. They would work that land, farm that land, and give the owner a cut of whatever it was they produced, in this case, olive oil. He goes, take 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager, the steward, is isn't his money. He had no right to, this, but he goes, take your bill and sit down quickly, do this quickly, and make it 450 It's like, what? I mean, that is a lot of olive oil now that he doesn't have to repay. In fact, you start doing like some real world calculations on like how much was the olive oil worth versus like how much was an annual employment of a person. I mean, this is a lot of money that you're talking about. Just a very, very rough estimate. This is pastor math, so you have no idea how reliable it is, but... I'm going to go ahead and say, because I read somebody earlier this week who said, it was about a half a million dollars that he wrote down. That is a ton of money. I don't care who you are. Sit down. How much do you owe? About a million dollars. And he goes, great. Cut that in half. You now owe half a million dollars. Have a good day. He's like, oh, I'm having a good day. All right. Now the guy, the olive oil guy, he doesn't walk out. No, he like floats out of there because he is so excited because he just earned, he, no, he just was gifted a half a million dollars. I mean, he's so excited. And that's just the first guy. The second guy comes in. He calls in the second. Verse seven. Hey, how much do you owe? <clears throat> a thousand bushels of wheat. He grows wheat. Wheat, yeah, it's, it's priced a little bit differently, he told him. So take your bill, Take your bill and make it 800 bushels of wheat. Again, I read earlier this week that it it turns out that that amount, 200 bushels of wheat that he just wrote down, is again worth about a half a million dollars. Wheat guy doesn't leave out of the office, strangely enough. He doesn't walk out, at least. He floats out of the office again because he is so excited about what just happened. He was just gifted a half a million dollars. Okay, this is where it gets weird, because I live in Kentwood, just right here, kind of a little south of us. We're kind of technically in Kentwood right now. There's 56,000 people in Kentwood. I, I don't know what happens with everybody, right? Like it's a big, it's a, it's a big town, it's a big city, whatever. I don't know most of those people at all. Grand Rapids is like a million people, metropolitan area. I don't know a lot of these people. This, we're not talking about Grand Rapids in the story. We're not talking about a million people or, or even 10,000 people. The typical village in that time, in that era, in that place where Jesus was telling the story, they probably had in their mind a village of like 100 people. Everybody kind of knows 100 people. If you grew up in a town with 100 people like you, you would know if a whole bunch of people in that town just earned or was gifted a half a million dollars, right? Because everybody would be partying. And especially in a culture like theirs. I mean, the natural response to this is like, holy cow, the guy who owns all the property around here just gifted all of us all of this money and half a million, you and you get a half million. This is a crazy lot of money. It's this windfall that comes over the village, right? And so they start partying and they got like the fattened calf on the spit with the little apple in its mouth. And if you're vegan, then it's just the apple. I mean, they're just thrilled out of their minds Because of what just happened. They're dancing and they're partying. And then the manager hears, or the owner hears what's going on, doesn't he? Oh, that's funny. I thought, I thought I had that guy fired. And so he goes out, he like knocks on the door, right? Uh, Hey, yeah, turn the music down for just a second. What? what's everybody so excited about? Like, are you kidding me? This party is in your honor because like the manager got you to like give us all of this money and, and like this cutting down our debts. I mean, like we're making so much now. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. And the, and the owner now knows, what am I gonna do next? Right? Because this is a legal activity, right? He could just go and say, uh, I'm sorry, there was a huge misunderstanding. Uh, I fired him earlier today. He had no right, no legal standing whatsoever to write down all these debts. I had to turn the music down a second, all the way off. Stop dancing. You all owe me millions of dollars. Have a good one. <laughs> right. Like this calculated move on the part of the owner now, he kind of reads the room, reads the situation at what's happening. And then verse eight, that the manager looked over at this manager Master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. I'm sorry. I'm expecting him to go in there, right? I'm expecting to go, guns blazing, right? He's got the FBI or securities people or like whatever the thing is. And goes like, he had no right. All of those transactions are null and void. Everybody owes the money, right? And now he's definitely getting led away in handcuffs. No, the, the owner of the master, the landowner goes in there and he, reads their room. And instead of slapping him with handcuffs, he gives him a high five and walks out because he knows, he knows what the manager just did. He knows that the manager completely backed him into the corner. He knows that the manager had like this one move yet to play and saying, I don't know much about the situation. I don't know much about managing money. Clearly, I've wasted his money, I've, acted, I've, stole, I've now stolen and embezzled his money and given it to other people. Yet, I can make this one move and give away so much of his money that he looks like a saint and everybody else looks at me like a saint and so I'm definitely gonna have a job in their house because everybody loves us right now, no matter what happens. And that's exactly what goes. What the manager knew about his master, about his owner, What he got right was at least one thing, that the owner that the master was in fact a very generous man. We learned that already, didn't we? In the outset of the story, when he found out that the manager, the accountant, was wasting his money, maybe even stealing his money, instead of leading him away in handcuffs, instead of dismissing him publicly and immediately, he does it quietly. He does it discreetly because what we know about the master, about the owner, about the landowner is that he has a generous heart and the manager acted shrewdly and leveraged that generosity for all it was worth. Now the disciples are looking at Jesus and like, what in the world was that about? A lot like you're looking at me right now. Like, what is the spiritual takeaway of any of this? That is a bizarre story. And so Jesus anticipates that and sees the slack jawed look on his disciples. He goes, Okay, I'll just tell you. In verse eight, he, he continues on and he goes, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light that was about as clear as mud. And the disciples are like, I still have no idea what you're talking about. So Jesus continues in verse nine, he goes, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What Jesus is saying is like, I know I made up a very bizarre story. That's kind of scandalous. And it really seems like it encourages theft and corruption. But listen, listen, this is the point that I'm telling you behind it all. And Jesus is saying, you know, like, now it's gonna sound like I'm really down on like bankers and investors and like, what, I'm not at all, but they do make a pretty good example here. So I'm gonna use it anyhow. Okay, Jesus is looking at these guys, right? That like, when the market tanks, when the housing in 2000, uh, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, like when everything kind of sinks, right? And the values all goes down. And Jesus is looking at the guys, the same thing would happen in the ancient world 2000 years ago, this is not a new phenomenon, which kind of also means that it's probably gonna happen again, financial peace plug number one. So, When everything goes down, these guys jump in there and they scoop everything up, right? They see an opportunity. It's priced low, it's cheap, and so they buy it all up. So that way, when it starts to go up again, they make all of this money. They leveraged the position that they were in, the finances that they had, to turn their wealth into a lot more wealth. This is not a new phenomenon today. It was happening 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is like, listen, they get it. The people of the world get it, and Jesus isn't condemning that at all. He's not making. He's not against any of that. He's not calling that out at all. He's just simply offering a point: is they get how to leverage wealth and turn it into more wealth. Jesus, the problem I have is that you, Jesus people, don't totally get that. The problem, as Jesus presents it, is that you, while you know that's true. You aren't putting it into practice. You aren't doing it. He goes, no. And just to make sure we're on the same page, we're not just talking about taking some wealth and turning it into more wealth. He goes, no, no, no. It's way more important than that because what we're talking about isn't earthly dwellings, isn't like a dwellings with a bedroom count and a bathroom count on a lake somewhere. No, no, or a golf course. We're not talking about those kind of dwellings. As he says, we're talking about eternal dwellings. Jesus is like, did you know like you must not have, because we, we, don't, we don't do it enough. Because for Jesus, the point is saying, there's a way, and I know, Jesus says, because I created it all. I created all the whole creation. I created um, that money, nothing was made that has been made, I haven't been a part of. So like, I get this. And Jesus goes, I understand that there's a way that you can take, you can take money, as crazy as this sound, and you can like, through the magic of economies and commerce, turn it in to food, for people who don't have any. Isn't that amazing? Like there's somebody halfway around the world right now who doesn't have enough food to eat. Like they don't know where their meal's gonna come from. And Jesus is like, you have an opportunity to use your wealth, right? Not just to create more wealth. You can leverage it that way. Okay, lots of people do that. But there's a way that you can leverage your wealth. You can, there's a way that you can take your wealth and like turn it into food to feed the hungry. Isn't that amazing? And it's not only just like a thing about halfway around the world, but right here in Grand Rapids, we work with the, the pantry all the times, local place, tons of people from here start to serve over there, small groups sitting over there, staff work days uh, over there. They do a great job, but we can take our financial resources, our money right now, and we can turn it into meals for people right here in Grand Rapids who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Isn't that that amazing. And Jesus takes it, right? He's kind of like, you just start playing this whole thing out and seeing how far that this can possibly go. You can you can take your money and turn it into food to feed the hungry. You take your money and turn it into clothes to, to clad the naked. You take your, your money and turn it into a mosquito uh, net for so someone in the developing country to sleep under so these little kids don't get malaria and die. Like you can take your money, and you can turn it into, translate it into, leverage it into a saved life. Isn't that unbelievable? And Jesus goes one step further. And again, we're not just talking about this life, although it's true for this life. We all get that. But he's talking about the eternal life as well. He's talking about the possibility of taking some money And like donating its cause, giving its cause, doing something with that money so that it somehow through the magic of a commerce and, and business or, or maybe uh, missionaries or church starts or like new ministries or like whatever it is and like turn that money into the message of Jesus landing in front of somebody who's, who's maybe potentially never heard it before, at least not heard it like that. And they find it so compelling enough that they now believe and their like eternal destination has now shifted as a result of that. Isn't that the power of leveraging our financial situation for something with eternal Eternal, everlasting significance. How incredible is that? Do you get what I like the power of what I'm saying? Nobody said anything. So I'll give you an example. All right. Um, imagine this, right? Like you get, you die, you go to heaven, be God go to heaven. We talked about that last week. Time is limited, limit your time. You go to heaven. And you're walking around and there's not like harps and clouds and and whatever. The next creation, that's a lie. That's not in the Bible. Um, The the next creation is at least as good as this one. So like you're walking around on an actual street, right? And somebody comes up to you and they're like, hey, is it it John? Or they come up to you and they're like, is it Susan? And you're like, yeah, I don't think we have ever met before. And they're like, no, we have not met before ever. I can tell you that, except... A very long time ago, do you remember taking five bucks and like stuffing it in one of those like Christian international like uh, Miracle Network envelopes? Like every month, like you just stuff five bucks in there and sent it out, right? And they sent it to an organization that promised to provide shoes, clothing, food, and an education to some kid in another country somewhere. And you're like, "Eh, vaguely, I don't know. And you're like, no, no, no. You kept a picture of that kid on your refrigerator on a magnet. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. And you're like, I, we're in heaven right now. I can look down and I can see the picture is still there. It's a little dusty, but do you know what? I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I think I remember that from a very long time ago. And the guy is now going, yeah, that's me. I'm that kid. He said, you stuffed five bucks in an envelope every single month and like sent it away and never thought about it again, except my life was changed. In fact, I went to that school and they told me about Jesus, and I believed, in effect, my my eternal life changed as a result of that. You may not have thought much about it at all, but but like he looks at you now, square in the eyes, he goes, I am here because of you. Now that's That's the point that Jesus is making. That how incredible it is to take this stuff, this wealth, the money that we have that comes through our fingers, and leverage it and turn it into something with profoundly eternal significance. And you might look back at this, right? And say, well, hang on a second. Like, the scandal of the story wasn't. Wasn't that the guy just gave a lot of money away. He gave away someone else's money. Like that's the part that I don't get in the story is that's the corruption part and the stealing part, right? The illegal activity that was involved in the story. That's the part that I have objections to. And Jesus is like, oh, no, no, that was not a mistake. That is central to the story because you are not an owner, Dirk, I am not an owner. I am a steward or I am a manager of the Lord's gifts, the Lord's wealth, the Lord's resources. It's all his to begin with. And he allows it to like pass through our fingers for just but a brief moment. And he, and it's up to us to decide what in the world that we are going to do with it. And God, up there over on heaven, is looking down at all this and saying, what are they going to do with my resources? And we don't know a whole lot about who God is, or we don't have a clear idea about what he wants us to do with our money all the time. And we don't necessarily have to, because what we do know is that there's one thing we might suspect, is that is that God is a generous, generous owner. He is so generous in fact that he allows us to steward his resources in the first place. He is so generous in fact that he has looked down at us in our situation and acting dishonestly or acting out of line or wasting, wasting our lives and whatever and said, I want to do something about that. And the generous God looks down at us and says, I will not withhold my son, my only son from you to die a death of a thief on a cross. I will give you him so that you can have eternal eternal life. That's what we know about God. And He is not at the end of the day gonna meet us standing before Him and saying, You know what? I gave you all of those resources, those financial resources, and you turned it into way, way more financial resources. But you really wasted a hefty amount on mosquito netting to save a kid from malaria. That was not yours to do with. We are not gonna meet God at the end of all time. And he's saying, you spent the money that I allowed you to steward on clothing the naked or feeding the hungry. What we know about God from his generous heart is that he's gonna look back on that. He's not gonna lead us away in handcuffs for such activity. He's gonna high five. He's gonna compend. He's gonna say, come on. Come on into to these eternal dwellings. That's exactly what I wanted, of how I wanted, ultimately my resources to be spent. Guys, that's why around here we do things like the Reach campaign or like the, like the deal to put up the lights and the systems. And I'll be honest with you, like, it's cool. Like I get into, you know, seeing a paint color around. I'm, I'm definitely in favor of that. I've made a lot of jokes about our mismatched chairs in the past. I don't care about a lot of this stuff right? But what matters? What matters is that sign out there in our lobby that says that we bring people far from God to new life in Christ. And if that's one way that we can translate our our like temporary possessions now and like leverage it for an eternal difference, why haven't we done that already? One thing that I've noticed, as Zach mentioned earlier, a little while ago, we were meeting in a living room and then we started meeting in a school where we could have more capacity to meet more people. And funny thing happened, we got to tell another hundred people about Jesus and the love that he had we love that and then the opportunity came to move here and it was like that's so that's so awesome like, we could tell even more people about the love that Jesus has. Isn't that amazing? And then another couple hundred people started coming that we could tell about the love of Jesus. And then we're like, upstairs, it still smells like an old gym. Let's renovate that and do an entrance and kids' ministries and upper lobby. It's paint and carpet. I mean, let's go for that. And then a couple more hundred people we could tell about Jesus. And it's like, what in the world? Like, this is amazing. And I don't know exactly what's gonna happen next. But as we continue to invest, and as we continue to like use this, this spiritual leverage to say, if we could translate some of what we have, now into changed change lives and change eternities and bring people far from God to new life in Christ why don't we do that and we are I'm not trying to the campaign is done we're not passing the buckets around I just want you to understand in whatever opportunities come your way just how significant and how important this thing really is the problem that we have the problem, that's not just me, it's the problem that Jesus identified, is while that's true, and while I want to hand it over to Jesus, I wanna serve Jesus, I wanna dedicate everything to him. And I have known so many of you long enough and deep enough to know that I think you want that too. But there's something that stands in our way. And it's not something profoundly evil necessarily. It's not something contrary to, to God, but there's something else that stands in the way of us experiencing that. And that's when Jesus wraps up the story. And he says, after all of this, if there's one thing that's gonna stand in the way of you serving Christ, he says it's the simple fact in verse 13 that nobody, nobody can serve two masters. If you've ever had two bosses before, a corporate one and a job site one, you know it's so hard to serve two masters. If you grew up with divorced parents, and there's dad's rules and mom's rules in different houses. You know how difficult it is to serve two masters. Either you're going to hate one and love the other. Mom has so many rules and dad lets me stay up late and watch shows that mom doesn't let me. Or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. The corporate boss, you know, doesn't know, and doesn't understand how this thing works, or how to get the project off the ground. The job site boss, she gets it. She knows. She's the one I'm devoted to at the end of the day. She hired me, right? No one can serve two masters. And Jesus he wraps it up, he goes, listen to this. You cannot serve both God, and he doesn't say the devil. He can't serve, he, he doesn't say you can't serve both good and evil. No, no, he doesn't go on any of that. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, for Jesus, like what he's just simply pointing out is like, if, if even if you wanna serve Jesus, even if you want to give your life and your finances completely over to him to do with as he would have you do. And who better knows how to manage your situation than the creator of all of it. Even if you want to, what stands in the way? It's Bank of America, (laughs) Visa, Amex, like the car payment, whatever it is that like got in the way in the first place, right? That money service is still after 2000 years is still keeping Christians from fully devoting themselves, fully following Jesus. If you're looking for like just a little like, snippet of line to, to like kind of just slap onto this whole thing, you could say that you, if, you're serv- if you're a slave to debt, then you can't really serve Christ. I mean, if every month you're just trying to just scrape by and make it through to like pay off Visa or pay off Bank of America or pay off the student loans, I got quiet. I know, you know it was coming, but like if every month you're just trying to like get to that point and just, then you're a slave to that and you can't really serve. Jesus, is this why we do stuff like Financial Peace University and budgeting stuff and like all that? It's just because we need to like, addition by subtraction, right? Like pull some stuff out, create that margin, create that place where we can catch our breath financially so we have something to serve Jesus with. And hopefully after a long period of time, we have more to serve the cause of Christ with. Because once once you're a slave to those things, once you're a slave to the stuff, to the obligations every month, if you, once you're a slave to those things, when when Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in in, in Matthew six or seven, can't remember, and and he and he says things like, "Hey everybody, don't worry." Okay? Because like look at how, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your father, your heavenly father feeds them, he takes care of them. And you're like, you know what? Jesus, the birds didn't have a debt collector calling me at work. Okay? So until then. I'm gonna worry, right? Like it robs us of that life that Jesus was talking about throughout his ministry. It's like that emotional level, but there's also like a practical level. Our mission statement around here, worship God, connect with one another. I want it to be each other because that's how we, somebody introduced to me, a hundred, literally a hundred times in the New Testament, the phrase, it's one word in the Greek New Testament, the language that it was written in. One another was one word. It's used a hundred times. Love one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens again and again and again. Look out for one another. But if you're already a slave to debt or a slave to visa or a slave to whatever it is, you can't serve, love, carry one another's burdens because you're already fully committed over here. And the next one that I wanna, I wanna leave you with is just the power, the power and the significance of this, the power and significance of God moving mountains in your life. Because, because I think that a strange thing happens, right? Like, like once, you start, once you start doing that, like pulling back out of the red zone with your car, you know, the attack, once you start like pulling away from that and once you start creating that, that like margin, w- w- once you start having that, that gap where you can like catch your breath financially and, and once this thing starts to work, and once you find yourself no longer so much just serving your stuff or serving yourself or serving Visa or bank, of once you find yourself no longer a slave to those things, you find yourself free to worship, free to serve Jesus. And, and God, like he has a weird way, and you can talk to people who've been through this and have done this journey, he's got a weird way of speaking all through that where they're like, you know what? I was living on so much less. I was, my life was just, but it wasn't like it was less. It was like it was more full. You know, I was, it was so much less stuff, but a funny thing happened. I didn't feel deprived. I felt lighter in the end. You can talk to people who've been, been through this and like are like, I know the math wasn't always supposed to work out, but like for whatever reason, it was like my life was better as a result of what happened, even though my standard of living went down, it was almost as if my quality of life and nights sleeping and worship, quality of life started creeping up. And it was like God saw that there was a gap in my life of that stuff. And then he stepped in and, and he met and he met and he filled out and, and he created this meaning in my life that I didn't even know was there previously. And it's like, I don't get this addition by subtraction thing all the time, but it almost as if that life is, is more when you focus on less. Uh, one guy, I cannot even begin to describe how perfectly he understood this. Um, I heard him a number of years ago, his name's Gary Hogue. He was a um, vice president of Denver University, I'm sorry, Denver Seminary. It's a big seminary and it's very well known, very reputable. And he was serving as a vice president there when, Suddenly, kind of without notice, the president at the time, his late 90s, ste- or early aughts, stepped down. And so they're looking around, they're like, we've got a good vision, a mission, we need somebody to carry this. Who's gonna step in and who's gonna run this behemoth of a school? And, and everybody, all eyes, kind of started turning towards Gary because he was the vice president because he knew the vision, he knew the mission, he had great organizational savvy. Like he, he knew how to carry this thing to where it was going. And so they start looking at him. Only he goes on his prayer retreats, ask God, whatever they want, whatever I might want, God, what do you want at the end of the day? And as he was talking about God that week, God started telling him, I don't want you to stay. I don't want you to take that job. I don't even necessarily want you just to leave. God made it abundantly clear to him that Gary, what I want from you And he doesn't, God doesn't do this all the time. He doesn't make this mandatory for every follower of of Jesus. But God told Gary, he's convinced of it. God said, I want everything from you. Gary, you've got a wife, Jenny, a son, Sammy, a daughter, Sophie. You're not in a place to do this, but I'm gonna ask you anyway, because I'm God. Gary, would you take, would you give everything away? clear it all out and I'm not talking about a bank account <laughs> and, and I'm not just talking about selling the stuff in the spare room Gary I want you to take your retirement accounts I want you to take everything and clear it all out zero your net worth start over again at this time he was a pretty successful guy he, he added all up he had a tune, maybe $225,000 to his name God do you seriously want me to give every last penny away God said yeah And he did. He gave it all away. It was a family decision. Short while later, now this is what didn't make it on the blog and in the book, is that his wife was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And it was early stage. It was very treatable. Her life was never at risk and threatened because they had the treatment that they could do. And they did. But the problem was he was broke. He was flat out broke because he had just given every last penny away. And so he took... He took all of the bills. He took all of the doctor's appointments, the receipts. He took everything that he had. And he went to the coffee table. He got his kids, Sophie and Sammy. He's got his wife, Jenny, around. And Gary laid it all on the coffee table. And they added it up, and it came just shy of $10,000. And they started praying. And he said, God, you convinced us early that you wanted us to give it all away, and we don't have any resources to pay for this. And most people, they didn't know at the time. They didn't know that he had given everything away. They knew that he was giving a lot away, but they didn't know it was everything. But they prayed about that, and Sammy prayed, and Sophie prayed, and Jenny prayed, and Gary prayed. And it was a family decision. And they said, God, we have a need. We need you to meet our need. We stepped out on faith. We need you to show up with unending faithfulness. And the checks started coming in. Wait for it. The checks started coming in, and they would open up the checks, and they would read them, and they, they started keeping a little tally, a little list of just how much came in. And shocking to their surprise, the total came out to be exactly on the dot ten thousand dollars. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that it was a family decision to give it all the way. It was the family decision to lay out all the bills on the table and to invite their kids and everybody else to pray about that one. The point of the story is a family decision through and through. And now, as God shows up and meets that need, it is now a family celebration. Because they banked on the generosity of God. And now, Gary is like looking around and looking at his little girl, looking at his nine-year-old daughter, Sophie. And she's running around the house and she's dancing. dancing around the house, and she's singing this made-up song about God and saying, he's real, he's real. You can trust him because he's real. And he's like, that was worth a quarter million dollars. That was worth infinitely more because she will always look back at this moment and realize, I can bank on the generosity of God. I can bank on the generosity of the owner. I am nothing more than a steward, and it is all his, but I, can bank on him today and every day after that. And you can bank on the generosity of God as well. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray to that God together. Our gracious God, you, you are so good. Thank God there's so much of our lives there's so much of our hearts our financial lives that we keep from you. And God, we don't trust you. And God, the irony is that it all belongs to you anyways. Teach us this week to show what it means to bank on your generosity, to trust in you. If that means, Lord, stepping out on faith, that means trusting you to show incredibly more faithfulness in return. God, as the mountain shakes us and causes us to fear ahead of us, whatever it may be, bills or illness, or doubts, God, we will not be shaken. Lord, because you live inside of us. God, that you're calling us to faith. You're calling us to trust. And God, it's all yours. May we trust and may we bank on your generosity this week. Amen.